Hello, everybody. Welcome to the No Breaking Podcast. I'm actually here. Uh, I would say it's kind of like a secret underground lair, but it's actually overground. And I'm here with someone who I would say is, um, on first meeting him, he is a, a lovely young man. He would be, I'd say he's a passionate automotive enthusiast stroke entrepreneur. So, Mr. James Chan, thank you firstly, one, for inviting me to your overland secret lair and, and making time for us today. Thank you for having me, James. So, let's, uh, we've talked a little bit briefly before we go into this, and we're now sat in this incredible secret lair that you have. But how is it that you sort of got into the automotive? What was the driver, the passion that sort of, when did that start of getting ignited inside of you? Um, I would have to say I owe that passion to my father. Okay. Um, back in the 70s, I think I was a single-digit young man, mm-hmm. and uh, he worked at a uh, Toyota car dealership okay. selling cars. So sometimes when uh, a proper babysitter was not uh, available, he would basically let me roam around the car dealership, and I would kind of walk around through the showroom, and you know, mimicking car sounds, grabbing on a steering wheel, occasionally honk the car when I'm not supposed to. Yep. Play with the shift knob. I mean, so you're describing what I generally do when I go to a dealership these days? Doing the same thing. Yeah. 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 Except I peel for the shift knob, and, and my dad would find that in my pocket. Subsequently, later down the day, and you probably, you're not stealing ashtrays or cigarette lighters or something along that line. Yeah, well, I mean, they don't have ashtrays and cigarette lighters in many new cars these days, but still, I mean, and I think they do a pretty good, better job of, like, sticking the gear knob down these days. Yes. So, I recall, uh, not vividly, but I do recall the fact that I was playing around with cars. They were all Toyota-centric back then. And I think that was kind of where the first love of cars is. Mm -hmm. And, of course, you know, the choice of toys instead of giving me Barbie dolls and whatnot, I actually, you know, gravitate to Hot Wheels. Okay. Uh, The Hot Wheels were not particularly popular in Taiwan, where I was from. I think Matchbox had a better distribution over there. Mm -hmm. So I do remember playing with Hot Wheels and Matchboxes like a lot of the younger kids that gravitate toward cars, too. And I don't think you've probably given up that that desire for die-cast cars, as far as I can tell. Um, I am still uh, into the die-cast cars now, but uh, since the income has come up a little bit, I could afford to play around with full-scale cars as, a, as opposed to uh, miniature or die-cast cars. Yeah, it's sometimes nice to be able to sit inside them these days, right? Absolutely. So then where did the transition then go from uh, Taiwan to how did you get here? When did, the trans- when did you move over to the U.S.? Uh, we immigrated when I was seven years old, so first grade. Um, still into cars and still you know, reading magazines, following up on everything I can. Um, it really was a passion that became a career. So in high school, at a driving age, you know, some of my uh, more affluent friends got a new car uh, for a 16th birthday present. Mm-hmm. You know, Honda Preludes back in the days, a uh, 320i or a 325e, depending on what era it is, E21, E30 cars. Mm-hmm. Um, it, you know, Toyota Corollas, Celicas, Supras just came out in 83, the second gen. Yep. So these were the cool cars to have. Uh, unfortunately, at that time, there isn't a whole lot of Japanese wheels for Japanese cars. Um, if you had a German car and you want to set BBSs or Renaults or whatnot, they were available. Yep. If you have an American car like a Mustang or Camaro and you wanted some Center Lines, Welds, American Racing, they were available. They're available, yeah. But on a Japanese car, if you wanted something like an SSR, Weds, Work, Rays, Volk, all the Jap- uh, Hayashis, they were not available. Yeah. So I have friends of mine that go, hey, James, you know cars. What's going on? Can, can you bring us these parts? We can't find them anywhere. 
being poor and hungry and driven and entrepreneurial, I think I was like 15 or 16 or so, um, I said, yeah, my uncle lives in Japan and I can get anything you want. Uh, fortunately, my mom, working for an import company, had a fax machine at our house. Okay. So say 80, 1983, 84 or so, most homes don't have a fax machine. Yeah. Only large offices do. So I had access to one. And I would make really nice cover sheets to mimic that I was a real company. And I would send this type of inquiry to all these different uh, companies in Japan that did mail order or trading houses or export. So thus, a, a business has created. So how did you manage to track down these companies in Japan at the time? Um, I went to a couple of the Japanese bookstores in, in Japanese town. So you're in like Kinakunya? Kinakunya is one example. I mm-hmm. think it was called something else back then, but it was like in Yohan supermarket. Now it's Mitsuwa. There was magazines like all uh, like Option and yep. All of Fashion and, and, and Rev and all these different magazines. And these companies were advertising in the back going, hey, we sell wheels or we sell HKS or Grady or other components. Yep. So I would pick one up and, and write in kanji and is Japanese because I'm Chinese, so it's kind of that language. doesn't sound the same, but has very, very similar meaning. And I'm saying, hey, I'm a company in the United States. And we specialize in Japanese cars and Japanese wheels. Will you sell to us? So with a fax machine and armed with my mom's credit card, I started bringing wheels in a couple sets at a time. And your excellent set of calligraphy, I would say, or headers and footers that you've been able to put together. Yeah, and I've got kind of a little bit autistic back, uh, graphic background. So my cover sheet looks legit. My calligraphy was legible. And I would write in very simple kanji or in simple English because I want four of these wheels and I knew the offsets, I knew the bolt patterns. So they felt like they're dealing with somebody who have a good understanding of wheels and applications. Mm-hmm. And with a credit arm with a credit card, they start shipping a set of wheels to me. What's gonna stop you, right? Well then the word got out going, Hey James Chen, he's the guy, he can give you all these Japanese wheels for your car. So the word got out and I was selling to a couple of my classmates in high school and the word got out further. So in in the South County or in Southern California, I became that guy that would import the wheels. So that's kind of how it started. Okay, and so where did, how did it sort of then snowball from there? I mean, where did you, where were we talking to what happened next? I mean, so this was like, what, 84, 85? So I graduated in high school in 85 yep. and went to college for about a semester, decided college wasn't for me. Mm-hmm. So it was time to, quote unquote, get a real job. And that's when I started uh, with a friend of mine selling basically retail parts in Alhambra. Mm-hmm. And it was very much Japanese centric. And we sold like, you know, wheels like Momo and Fittipaldi and BBS as well. And then eventually that, you know, led me to a little bit more of a corporate job. So I worked for a company in 1990 that imported the AC Schnitzer and Lorenzer parts mm-hmm. for BMWs and Mercedes. Okay. That parlayed to another job as a manager. And I started a wholesale division of the next company. And then the company before I started Axis, I was the general manager of that. And by then, we were the importer for Brabus and, and Kellner Sport. And uh, we, I, I had the pleasure of going to Germany or, and, and Italy to do business and kind of open my eyes. And in 1997, I go, you know what? If, uh, if I want to make some real coin, it's better to be in business for yourself. Yeah, because obviously, they're making a lot of money for all these other people. And I go, I want to have nice cars. I, I want to make a lot of money. So uh, subsequently, I left and uh, started Axis uh, Sport Tuning. And then, so what was the, the driver behind, or that still is sort of the driver for Axis Sport Tuning then? Well, at that time, in all candidness, the cars I enjoyed driving and I was passionate about was probably German cars, you know, BMWs, Mercedes, mm-hmm. and Porsches, even though I couldn't afford them. But the trend was coming in 1997 when I started Axis. The Honda Acura scene was getting very strong. 
um, there was a appetite for Japanese wheels or Jap for Japanese cars. The Japanese wheel companies was not receptive to Hondas because that was kind of a secretary's car or just basic mean of transportation. Mm -hmm. So they kind of neglected the Honda Acura wheel applications. They were much more focused on Toyotas and Nissans, like the Supras and the Zs and so on and so forth. Yeah. So I started making wheels that is specifically for Hondas and Acuras. And that started taking off. And then in 2000, there's a little movie called Fast and the Furious, mm -hmm. if you're familiar with that. So my wheels got featured in one of the hero cars, the Green Eclipse. And then it was also featured with the, the villain cars. And that movie kind of legitimized our industry as it went from car guys that's eating top ramen you know, nine times you know, a month to save up money and so on and so forth to, hey, this is mainstream. People really like these cars. So it legitimized our industry. I just like that you were overnighting parts from Japan well before the guys in the Fast and the Furious were overnighting parts from Japan. I guess I was a pioneer. You were. You were like the leader of that trend, right? So, um, how, so how did the cars, the wheels get featured then in Fast and the Furious? What, did, what led to that? A uh, good friend of mine, his name is Craig Lieberman. Mm -hmm. I think he was hired as a technical consultant. Uh, the movie, was, I think, it was called Redline originally, and that name didn't pan out. Um, the movie guys are probably better stuck with movies and they're not car guys, especially import cars. So the choice of the cars, the accessories that was on it, was uh, not accurate. It was not what the guys on the street drives or flaunt or, or, or rolled on, so to speak. They hired Craig Lieberman. Craig kind of going, no, 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 this is not right. That's not right. Nobody runs these. Nobody's run that. From his expertise in the automotive sector, especially in, in the import cars, he started going, you need to have this brand wheel to be authentic. You need to have that brand wheel to be believable. Uh, the, the audience, you know, can see through um, what's gonna, what's what's authentic and what's not. So it's better to make it authentic. And he uh, contacted myself and a couple of other companies that were quote unquote legit mm -hmm. and relevant in the uh, in the car space. Yeah. So I was called in and said, hey, um, can you know, can you furnish us with some wheels? And I went, sure. Uh, we're dealing with Universal Pictures at that time. And he goes, you know what? We're Universal Pictures, so you should gift us 10, 20 sets of wheels. And me being cheap Chinese frugal entrepreneur going, oh, no, we don't have that kind of marketing budget. So I ended up selling wheels to them and made a tidy profit. So I was quite pleased with the whole look, you can't Look, you're a businessman. I'm not going to hold that against you. So, I mean, obviously the Fast and Furious has changed a little bit now from where it started from to where it's gone to where we've got like androids and so forth and things when whatnot. But I think that one of the endearing factors about those original movies is the realism of the cars and, and how important it was to have it there. Yeah, I absolutely agree with you. Um, the, the cars of choices was what, kind, you know, what the, the, the people, the enthusiasts actually drove. You know, there's certain you know, clips that uh, the, I think one of the Paul Walker's quarter mile drag race instead of being over in 13 seconds, and so I think it lasted like three minutes as he changed the boost level on his laptop. You know, that wasn't quite accurate, of course, but that's mo the movie business. Yeah. But again, it got us started, you know, it, it legitimized our business, and it's, it was fun. And now these days, looking back now, 19 years back, uh, some of these movie cars are revered and, and loved, and there's enthusiasts that's trying to replicate the movie cars like it was. In yeah, the, I mean, I've yeah. seen, the, especially the Green Eclipse is getting recreated here in Southern California, I think. And we still get emails every day going, hey, can you make these wheels again? We're building a, a Green Eclipse or, you know, what's, you know what's, what's cool in the past is cool again now. Can you reissue and re-edition these wheels? You know, it, 
there's a scale economy there, obviously, and we can't do sure. that. But it was kind of nice to take us back to some um, down memory lane, so to speak, no pun intended. Sure, sure. And then, so where, how, with Axis then, what happened? How did things progress over these last 19 years? What else have you been doing from there? So, uh, so from 1997, we were a retail store. Mm-hmm. By 1999, we were a wheel brand. Uh, we were focused on the, again, Japanese cars. Then we morphed into the German cars where I actually did like quite a bit. BMWs, Mercedes, Porsche, so on and so forth. And then from there, we went into the SUVs. We, we were trying to be the, f- the forerunner or the pioneer or, you know, and, and lead, the, um, lead the pack on where the appetite is for the future consumer. And that, that did you know, very well till probably about 2008 or nine. Yep. And the recession hit. And, uh, Which wasn't good for everyone, really. It was horrible. Our sales were down by 65%. Yeah. I had to virtually reinvent myself overnight just to stay afloat. And we did that. And we kind of, today, access is more on the private label sector. Mm-hmm. We make wheels for other people. Yeah. So can you, I mean, we've talked to some other people on the previously in the podcast, but can you explain a little bit more what the private private label manufacturing process means or how that comes about? Sure. So, you know, I own all the brands uh, or some of the brands that uh, we private label to, and they've got their strength, which is probably, you know, the warehouse basing, capital, mm-hmm. uh, distribution, and logistics. And I have, I think I'm pretty keen to, with marketing. So I would create brands that are relevant, that consumers will want right now, and I would make these brands exclusively for customers. So that's essentially kind of, uh, some of them are their house brands, some of the brands I market, and that's kind of how it works out. So we have good volume, and I still, you know, design, engineer, procure, facilitate, do all the transaction for them, and ship them to their door so they can worry about what they do best. Yeah. Uh, what they do best may not be creating wheel brands, mm-hmm. may not be creating applications for super relevant cars, um, but this is where I can tap my strength and add it with their, their strength and create a meaningful business that uh, is profitable. Sure, and then, so from that, how do you find that the, the wheel, manif- the market is, I should say, right now? I mean, I'm guessing that you can almost look at any car and you could be like, this this size wheel, this is the offset, this, that, the other. I mean, I think you've probably got some kind of an eye for it, right? Uh, being in business for about 30 years now, yeah, I can probably pinpoint that pretty well. The, the shift is that OEM, car manufacturers in general, has gotten tremendously better on providing the needs of what the consumers want. Mm-hmm. So once upon a time, cars came with ugly 13-inch or 15-inch or 16-inch Steel wheels. wheels, yeah. Absolutely. And today, you can buy 19, 20, 21-inch wheels from the factory. Um, what, back, the go, new, what, the new high sports cars now, hyper cars, come out with, what, 22 and 23-inch? Uh, a lot of times, I think the super hyper cars are still 20-inch in, uh, in the front and sometimes 21-inch in the back. Yeah. Uh, the other thing was, you know, we used to upgrade our stereo system in our cars to a, a new cassette player, bigger speakers, Not CD anymore. player. Everything's integrated now. So, yeah. you know, I think the OEM got really, really smart and want to take every dime that you may spend mm-hmm. to the aftermarket sector yeah. and put it in their pocket or built into financing. Yeah, because I remember when in-car entertainment or ICE. ICE is what the English call it. Yeah, 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 yeah. it used to be a big thing. And now it's like, I mean, barely... I mean, and the ice market, or we call it the 12 mile market in America, is now really decimated because you can't. Now you've got built in the, the stereo system is built into the navigation, it's built in all these different. You can't add anything anymore. You can't, you can't change it. Yeah. I mean, the, the, the fathoming trying to take a modern stereo out of a car and then replacing it with something else and how it would impact everything. I mean, it'd be a nightmare. So I think as time progresses, the OEM got really smart mm-hmm. and start removing uh, the, the option 
of adding additional items to your vehicle or accessorizing them. And again, I remember putting on a front spoiler or side skirts on the car, and now you wouldn't do that anymore. You just tick a box, and it com comes with them, right? Yeah. When you order it, and yeah. you pick it out of the factory, and they and, can make it all specially for you. And then build into a financing. Yeah. And it goes, oh, you want this, the AMG that's, body kit? That's only $3 extra a month. That's totally go. fine. Yeah, Don't worry about it. It's okay. Yeah. So before we jump into like, so what other projects else have you had online? I mean, like you said, we talked, you're an entrepreneur, you've got ideas, you're always floating things around. What else have you been up to? Um, I think typically the business I start or, or IX is uh, very passion oriented. Mm -hmm. It is something I know. Mm -hmm. So wheels is something I know. Cars is something I would like to, to know. Uh, I, like, I would like to say I know. So four years back, I started a, a, a mobile tire company called ASAP Mobile. And uh, it was uh, a self-contained Mercedes-Benz Sprint van with the mounting machine, balancer, you know, air compressor, and and, and uh, generator. Mm -hmm. And we can sell tires and go to your home or office. So that ran about four years, and uh, eventually I exited that business. Which is a great idea that you came up with. I think so. Yeah. So the new companies now took that from a five you know city location to multi-city location. Mm -hmm. And then my latest venture is a company called Alpha Equipped. So shameless plug here, Alpha, A-L-P-H-A, equipped is spelled E-Q-U-I-P-T, and you can follow us on Facebook and Instagram, hashtag Alpha Equipped, and so on and so forth. So I'm sure you're going to ask James, what is Alpha Equipped and what it does? That was actually my next question. I'm a mind reader. So Alpha Equip is wheels and accessories designed for the guys that are into overlanding. Mm -hmm. And you know what overlanding is for the guys who don't. It's basically... A nice, another nice way of camping by car. Glamping by car. Glamping by car. So gone are the days of you sleeping on the floor with a, a trash bag over you. We're talking about these luxurious uh, tents that goes on top of your roof rack. Mm -hmm. And to, to counterbalance your aching back, you can use an air mattress that you inflate with your onboard air compressor. And there's titanium cookware that can cook hot food. A refrigerator by ARB that slides out that keeps your beer at a perfect 22 degrees or whatnot. So that is overlanding. And then you can even have your, like you said, your cookout at the back and you can make us become a professional chef and do it all out in the open. It's good fun. Um, that's kind of what's morphing right now. And you get to see the wonderful places around the world, wherever you want to do it. And you're now, you could be disconnected from your phone, which I call like an like electronic leash. Yes. Because sometimes there's no cell service. Mm -hmm. So not being able to use a phone or having internet connection sometimes is good. Yep. And you have a two or three day vacation that is economically not impactful. Yeah. It's you and your gal or your kids. And, and the a, pets. And pets. Don't forget the pets. Yeah. And a, um, you know, forerunner, a, a, a uh, Land Cruiser, a Land Rover, and go camping for a few days. Yeah. So that's that's a growing segment right now. It's certainly. I mean, I think what they've even got. How many expos they have? They've got obviously the Overlander Expo, but they've got several shows. There's uh, several shows, East Coast and West Coast. There's mm -hmm. guys who are making that as a vacation. There's a huge summit in Colorado once a year for Toyotas. They would drive out there for over the course of a couple of days, camp there, and come back. Um, people are making a trip out of it where, you know, it's a destination. Yeah, and then even at SEMA, for example, I mean, that hall now was like one of the bigger halls and the more things going on, the, the 4 by 4 Expo Hall, I think it is, right? Yeah, I think uh, the other thing too is, you know, with the limitation of modification on new cars these days, mm -hmm. uh, Jeeps and trucks are immensely popular. They're a great way to accessorize a vehicle and make it your own. Yep. Then, now I've got this nice Jeep with lockers and 37-inch tall tires or this uh, Land Cruiser with a roof rack and this and that. 
what am I going to do with it? Go to Starbucks and park it on, you know. Well, I mean, they're great for dropping the children off and picking them back up, right? They are very useful, yeah. And you can always put your golf clubs in. Well, but then if you if you want to kind of complete the whole package, mm-hmm. then overlapping is it. So this is kind of what's what's happening right now. Yeah, especially I think, we, like we said, as we just talked about, with the OEMs becoming more wiser, I should say, and what they can do inside the cabin if they make it nice, then you can put the add-ons, the accoutrements on the outside for you to camp in and whatnot. It's a win-win situation, right? Yeah, yeah. And those are, again, uh, I believe once upon a time, the best-selling car in America was a Toyota Camry. Mm-hmm. As of last year or two years ago, the best-selling Toyota is a RAV4. And CUVs and SUVs are gaining in great popularities. Sedans are declining in sales, and so is coupes. So we see that shift. Yeah. Most people would prefer an SUV or a CUV over a sedan. And then they may want to do certain things with it, or they may like to be associated with, with a certain lifestyle, the flannel shirt, the dog, Look, the canoe on top. I've always got my ax over my shoulder. I'm ready to chop down a tree at any time. <laughs> I mean, you see this facial hair, James. I'm very serious about it. You've you, you got the look going on very well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So that's kind of what's, what's going on right now, and we're embracing it. It's fun. And I do, I do it as well. I've got a couple of trucks that I go off-roading with. And it's truly good fun. Yeah, I mean, I just recently was very lucky to have the, the guys over at Ram gave me a 1500 for a week. And my wife was very convinced. She was like, this is the vehicle that she was like, James, this is the best, this is the best loaner vehicle you've had. She was like, this is it, hands down. And I mean, tr- it, it didn't fit in the garage. No, nope, it's a little tall, a little it's, long. It's a little tall, it's a little long, it's a little wide, but everyone was terrified of you, so it was great. Well, and you can tailgate people, especially Priuses, and they'll get out of the way on the freeway because they're doing 61 miles per hour. Like, no, I just think of them as my buffer, so they can push the air over the top of me <laughs> to try and improve my MPG. So you can also, uh, you can drive, yeah, 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 yeah. hypermiling. And plus, here's the other thing too, you know, 20 years ago, the trucks were very basic, bare bones, Rubber floor mats. Yeah, I mean, they were very utilitarian. Utilitarian is a great word, yeah. Yeah. And these days, they're as nice as a Lexus or Mercedes. Adaptive cruise control on some of them. Heated and ventilated seats. I know I don't need to preach to the choir, but yeah. Look, I was going to say, so the Ram, Mm. 12 cup holders. 12. And seats, five. Seats, five. And these are five full-grown men. So it's 2.3 cup holders per person. Yeah, because that's that's what you need. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then it had more than enough USB ports to plug, every, so everyone could plug their devices in and do Plus one. Plus a 110, you could plug in a microwave oven if you have to. I think it had two spots for that if okay. you needed it. And then, but not only that, it had so much, it had more leg room in the back than a Bentley Mosan. I was saying I was going to pull like a long wheelbase S-Class's comparison and whatnot. It's luxurious and it's leather, automatic, climate control. It's got all the bells and whistles. Yeah. And like I said, the best thing, 33-gallon fuel tank. Oh, that's 500-mile range, no? Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, your bladder's given up before the fuel's going out. I mean, that's all I'm saying on that front, with especially the, with the two-and-a-half cup holders. With the rising gas prices now, I think most credit cards stops at about $100. That's probably the only that's uh, the limitation you know, there. you got to use two credit cards <laughs> to fill up your, your truck. Yeah. <laughs> uh, the times lead. So, with that being the case, and let's talk about, take a step back and look at and talk about some of your cars that you drive and some okay. of your toys. Okay. Um, so where should we start in regards to that? How do you want to well, go about doing it? you had a quick tour of my garage. Mm-hmm. You, I am not a car collector. There's an no enthusiast. Wrong. I'm an enthusiast. I, I buy what I like. Mm-hmm. I drive what I like. Um, you had a quick tour of the garage up there. Um, you want to pick a couple of cars that uh, well, you want me to talk about? Let's start down the front. So obviously we just want the Skyline, the R32, yeah, R32 and the SL. Yep. So uh, Let's talk about why you like them then. 
The R32 is quite interesting. Uh, so the first R32 was released in 1989. Mm -hmm. Those were a, I'm, I'm not keen on the exchange rate these days, but there are the, there are 5 million, 50 million yen. So they're basically a $50,000 USD equivalent car. Very expensive for 1989. Mm -hmm. But it was state of the art in terms of, it had a straight six, twin turbo, mm -hmm. four-wheel drive, four-wheel steering. I, I think I read somewhere it was actually quicker around the Nürburgring than the equivalent Porsche at, at that time. And that's the German playground for Porsche where mm -hmm. they dominated. Um, so this car had a lot of technology at this time. And it was the f kind of the first reiteration again on the GTR. Prior to that, I think it was 73 or 74, there was a Ken and Mary. Yeah. Prior to that, it was a Hakusoku and so, so on and so forth. So when, I, when that car came out, I wanted it, but I was going to school. There isn't fifty thousand dollars around. Yeah, and they didn't have too many of them here in the U.S. in '89. I think one or two guys brought it over as, as they were military personnel. They drove it for about six months. Got to ship it back. Every magazine in Japan, options, Rev, whatever it was, just you know that was the badass car. Mm -hmm. So when the twenty-five year year limitation came up, uh, I think it was like. The first batch of those cars were built in October, and I found like an early car that was built in November. So like November of 25 years afterwards, I got one of the first in America. And uh, this car here has uh, 35,000 original kilometers. Yeah, so I was always going to ask, how difficult was it tracking down a, a good example? A good friend of mine found it mm -hmm. and then decided to sell it to me. Uh, so it, it was really my body of network of the people I know and the right person at the right time and the right car. I would say 80, 90% of these cars were molested with, with a lot of aftermarket parts and wheels and whatnot. And, and I the, think- And they like the Japanese, very much Japanese attachments that you could find and buy at Autobucks and whatnot. Absolutely, yeah. The, 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 the 16 different gauges on your dashboard that monitors your blood pressure as well as the outside temperature, you know? It's, all which are very, very important to driving a car. Absolutely. So. Um, I found a very clean one that was not molested, that belonged to like an 80-year-old Tokyo doctor that passed away and was stored in his garage and la da la da la da. So it's probably one of the best examples and one of the lower mileage cars in America, mm -hmm. and that's not molested. But I still get, it's still a great driving car today. Mm -hmm. it, it still checks all the boxes. You know, it's very torquey, very responsive. The size is good. And it, it, it was something that I just really, really wanted back in the days. It was like the, the Nintendo or that game, game console you couldn't have yep. or that cool BMX bike that you couldn't afford. And I'm just kind of reliving my childhood. So that's where that the R32 is meaningful to me. It was the badass car then. Yeah, and then so next to that was the SL. Yeah. The so, first of many, I think, that you got to talk about with the SLs. Yeah, I've got the four SLs now, but that one is a R129. Mm -hmm. uh, so it's an SL500. Um, I think that that era of Mercedes was probably the best built cars, in my opinion, because Mercedes at that time was run by engineers and not by accountants. So they wanted to build a, a car that will last 20, 30 years. They wanted to use the best material. Engineering was its peak. Again, that was one of those cars in the 90s that I was working, and uh, I wanted a, a, a SL is one of my dream cars, and mm -hmm. I couldn't afford. So, you know, when, when, when it came around, uh, it is in Sun beam yellow so it's one of it's 16. very vibrant it's bright yeah it's sunny yeah mm -hmm. so it's got certain things like a panoramic top and it's got twenty thousand miles on it i knew the owner uh it was his you know he he took care of that car throughout uh, his stewardship 
and it was just, I think, like Teutonic engineering. It was, it was Mercedes-Benz at its peak, and it was just well done. And there's another car that I've always wanted. So I go, you know what? I have the space. I have the means. Might as well get that. Why not? And then I've got three Mercedes-Benz Pagodas. So a 230SL, the red one you saw in the garage, is mm -hmm. pristine. It's probably a 99-point car. It was done with a beautiful restoration. Uh, I bought that car for my wife and going, you know what? You know, hoping my wife kind of dress up as the Audrey Hepburn, Sophia Loren, Grace Kelly mm -hmm. with a scarf around yep. it, yep. carrying the Hermes bag, you know, tooling around town, picking up my kid. She hopped in there and she goes, well, the car looks okay. It's a 63 230SL. She got on it, pulled it out. He goes, the steering's kind of heavy. He goes, there's no power steering back in, sweetheart. Went around the corner, got on the gas and goes, is something wrong with the engine? It's not really pulling strong. Like my GT3, I go, well, sweetheart, your GT3 is 400 plus horsepower. This is 150 horsepower on a, on a good day. So, ah, a little too slow. The, sp the brakes is really spongy. I'm not a big fan. I want you to hang on to it. So that dream kind of deteriorated. Yeah. I drove that thing around for a couple of weeks. Enjoy the classicness and just being, looks like I, have a, I am a guy with good taste, mm -hmm. but it is slow as crap. It's yeah. molasses, mm -hmm. 150 horsepower, so on and so forth. So I go, you know what? Huh, the, the passion in me, and I start tinkering going, so what if it's got double the horsepower? That's a good idea. Yeah. So we found kind of an ugly one that needed a, a heart transplant per se, and we pulled the engine out, and I replaced it with a C36 AMG motor from a 202 car and matched it with a ZF5 speed. So now the second SL has 330 horsepower, better brakes. A little bit, a little bit more poke. A little bit more poke, yeah, double horsepower, a little bit more poke, yeah. Nicely put it. So that is my driving SL for rallies and, and so on and so forth. And then, you know, you can kind of ask the other cars as well. Yeah, so that was the three of the SL. So they said there was a fourth one? Oh, another one. Uh, See, we're gonna, I'm trying to get all of them in here. Yeah. And another, another one, I've got a thing for pagodas. So my third pagoda, we're going to convert that into an electric car. Oh, fun. So what drivetrain will there be? Pulling oh, out that's top secret right now. Okay. It's, it's kind of, we're working with another television series. Oh, okay. So it, I can't let the cat out of the bag, so to speak, and can't reveal too much of it. But it's going through electri electrification. And so why did you decide to go down the electrification route? Um, well, I think, to, okay, so I love vintage cars or older cars, especially cars from the 60s and 70s. Mm -hmm. but, and I have got a couple of those. But what I've really realized is sometimes they're not practical. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of things can go wrong. Mm -hmm. I've kind of used my AAA card more than I should. Yep. Uh, so reliability is a factor. And you very much find that out when you have modern cars and uh, old cars. Yeah, I've got... And especially if you go out with someone else and they get upset. So my wife doesn't do well sitting on the side of the curb waiting for a tow truck. Yeah. So she's going... No one really does, to be honest. That's just not a favorite pastime for Americans, I guess. Oh, anyone, I think. Yeah. I mean, English. I mean, I'm not even a fan of that. So... I mean, England, the weather's... On, but you'd be sitting on the wrong side of the street. And to be fair, we've always got the chairs in the back and we get the kettle out and we have a cup of tea. So it's, it's like a picnic, basically. <laughs> Without a tailgate to sit on. Well, yeah. Or else you buy like a Range Rover Classic where and, if and it does break fine. down, you can, you, seat. Yeah. you can sit on a tailgate and yeah. have a picnic. Yeah. So reliability is one factor. The other thing is, you know, if it's idling, the cars are usually without cat converters, of course. Mm -hmm. It gets stinky. My wife is not a big fan. So to get her into the car with me more often, I go, electrification could solve a lot of the problems and usability of older cars mm -hmm. and especially if you buy something from the 60s and 70s the engine is not functioning it could cost you five ten thousand dollars to rebuild the engine there's a lot of other, other stuff that complicates things and i think electrification could be one way to simplify 
and, uh, and simplify certain packaging issues yeah. and certain reliability issues. Because uh, I know, obviously, that some of the OEMs are also going down that route as well. Yep, I think Jaguar one. Jaguar, when uh, Prince Harry got married, mm-hmm. uh, he left Buckingham, one of those big castles I can't pronounce, and they left in a uh, series uh, one E type that was electrified. That was yep. un- under you know it's electric power. And they had, I think, it was a series two. I think that they had at the Quail that they were showing off that it wasn't just for that I, one. I wasn't there at Quail this year. It would have been last year, I think. Okay, and yeah. then there's a couple guys doing it with the 356 Porsches mm-hmm. and. Mustangs as well. Yeah. So this could be interesting, and this could increase the usability of these cars. And I want to learn more about it. Again, there's curiosity, there's passion, and so that's what we're exploring. So as we talked about Jaguar, you want to mention the other car you've got upstairs? Oh, the uh, well, okay. So it, it it looks like a XKSS. It barks or quacks or meows like a XKSS, but it's not. So what it is is a recreation or whatever, recontinue, whatever you want to call it. And it was based on a 1962 uh, Jaguar E-Type, mm-hmm. a Series 1. And I think it had a 3.8 liter engine originally. It was stroked to a 4.2. And it's been rebodied to look like a XKSS. And I think the certain parts are a little bit better. Mm-hmm. Uh, I had the pleasure of parking it next to the real Steve McQueen's uh, Jaguar XKSS at a, I think it's the uh, Steve McQueen car show. And compare it, and it looks kind of identical. What I noticed was when I climb underneath, uh, mine has a independent rear suspension. The XKSS, the real one, I think it was derived from the uh, D-type, so yeah. it has a solid axle. Yeah. Uh, I was trying to convince uh, Dana, who's part of the Peterson Museum team, going, "Hey, could I take that thing around and spin around yeah, the block, just give it and, a go. so I can compare A and B with my car instead?" And he goes, "No, nah, it's worth like fifteen, twenty million dollars. I think I don't think your insurance is uh, big enough to cover the, uh, the 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 possible damage." And then you were like, "Hold on, Dana, let me make a call." <laughs> he just passed the phone over to the second thought to Dana. So that's kind of what I have. So it's rebody as an XKSS. Mm-hmm. It has the heart or the guts of an E-Type and the drivetrain. Now I know you often get mistaken for Steve McQueen. Sure. Okay. Just looking at you and your appearance and whatnot. So. Do you often then recreate his like runs at two in the morning up and down Mulholland? Mulholland or Sunset, yeah. I think, yeah. Well, these days, the, the traffic is so bad, we can't recreate that. Uh, well, I, you can just do it much slower. Yeah, so the other car I had was a Ferrari Lusso, which Steve McQueen did own. I think his wife, or that wife in particular, bought it for him mm-hmm. as a birthday present. Yeah. My wife didn't do the same thing. I had to buy my own Lusso. But okay. Maybe the second wife or the third wife would do that. Well, maybe me. you should just learn. You could suggest something else in the future. Look, just keep just dropping hints on the fridge just to put a picture of things you like. I'd sure. be like, maybe birthday right on it. Right, but it would have to be an awful large uh, refrigerator yeah. with a lot of pictures on it. Yeah, just to get the hint. I mean, eventually, right? You've got to hope. Yeah. So so we talk about that, and then we're looking outside the garage. You obviously had the, the GT3 mm-hmm. and the Raptor. Mm-hmm. Daily beaters. Oh, it's hard. I, I, yeah. So I, I drive everything I own. Um, I think I have a Countach in there with 44,000 kilometers. Mm-hmm. So I'm a big believer on, you know, we're here for a short time. Uh, why save your car for the next boyfriend, so to speak, yep. and drive everything you own and, and don't regret it. So what do you like about the Lamborghini? The Countach? Yes. Um, again, it was... Or as uh, I say, the Countach. Because obviously I'm English. You said Countach, Countach. But I do have the authority... Uh, of pronouncing the word properly, my mother-in-law is Italian, like my wife, mm-hmm. and I, from what I remember, uh, someone said that it was a Piemontese or Piedmont or Piemontese Piedmont, but Piemontese 
pronunciation of oh shit, oh my god, oh kuntak. Mm-hmm. So the way my, mo- my mother-in-law pronounces it, that's how she pronounces it. And she goes, yep, that's a bad word in, in our language, but that, that is the that's correct right meaning. Um, so f- rewind back to, I don't know, 1978, Char- Charlie's Angel. I remember on the bedroom wall of my, in my room, there was uh, Farrah Fawcett in the famous uh, bikinis, you know, picture, uh, poster of, of hers. Lovely hair. Lovely hair. Amazing and You hair. were looking at the hair, but I was not. And then there was kind of like, so there's that. And then on the other side of my wall, the Lamborghini Countach. Now, did you, obviously we've got a picture of a white one That here. was mine. Yeah. I know. I guess that was yours. Yeah. I mean, I had a red one. Sure. On my wall. And maybe like Alpine underneath or something along that line. Yeah. I think every 12 or 14 year old boy had, had a Countach. Yeah, definitely. Oh, so... I saw that and I went, wow, I really like both of them, Farrah Fawcett, RIP, and Lamborghini Countach. And, you know, so I go, if I could one day, I would love to have that car. So when I turned 40, uh, I've been on the search for about two and a half years. I found the white on white on white, kind of cocaine white on top of, you know, so more cocaine. More cocaine. And then white, more cocaine and, and again. Sn- yeah. And then snort the cocaine off yeah. the rear wing of the car. Yeah. And, and so on and so forth. So I found that car. I go, I have to have it. I'm going to buy it now at age 40 while I can. Because at age 70, I may not be able to contort myself into that car. Yeah. So which leads me on to the next questions. I mean, obviously, they're famous for things like the reversing challenges. Which, which I have mastered being sitting on a door sill and yeah. using the right foot on the clutch and hang out like Valentino Balboni. Yeah. Okay. Obviously, if you can learn from the best, why not? Sure. I mean, he's a very charming young man. Yeah. But what are the other challenges of driving a vehicle like that? I mean, aside from taking, obviously, the day-to-day traffic and roads and everything else, what the actual, how difficult yeah. it is to control so yourself the, 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 Yeah, the rear vision is, you know, not there. Mm-hmm. Mirrors are very small, lots of blind spots. Um it is truly a challenge. The clutch is heavy. There is no power steering. Um, but that was my childhood dream car. So all the idiosyncrasies goes right out the window. And you just smile and enjoy it, basically. That's it. Yeah. 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 And then, so where do we go from there? So uh, so if I go back from the Jag, you had the other Porsche? Or Porsche, yeah, just, uh, as Cura I should say. GT looks like a big Boxster. Yeah, 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 yeah. So that one's, I think, one of the last analog supercars, V10, you know, manual transmission, you know, um, carbon fiber tub. Uh, I think it's one of the prettiest Porsche um, built. Mm-hmm. Uh, it is uh, very rewarding to drive. Uh, it is a handful, and you have to really respect the car. Um, the exhaust note on that V10 when it hits 7,000 RPM or so, the back of your hair on your neck stands up. Um, it, I, there's just so much more I can talk about that car with passion. It is probably one of the best analog mid-engine car to drive period and why do you say that then um you know it, it really connects with the driver the stiffness of the chassis the way that the suspension is set up all the shock absorbers and the springs are all inboard like a race car mm-hmm. um the v10 engine uh res with um i'm not trying i'm trying to use the right word but very little resistance forgive my my engine mocking noise now so on um, my old lamborghini v12 or a mercy lago if you rev the engine in neutral, is you feel like there's a lot of reciprocating mass mm-hmm. that is that slows the revving down as the RPM shuts down. On a V10 Porsche Carrera GT, don't laugh at me, or at least don't laugh out loud. I've never laughed. I would never laugh. Uh, but at it's James. more about wang wang wang. It's like a motorbike. Mm-hmm. So it just feels so free revving that when you downshift and try and match the RPM, the the, the 
the um, the RPM just spools right up, so you can hopefully match the downshift uh, when when you're trying to heal the toe and so on and so forth. It, it just feels really light on the feet, and the, the, because of the carbon fiber suspension, uh, the carbon fiber tub, it is so so rigid. You feel like you're part of the car, and it, you don't feel numb. You don't feel like you're removed from it. You don't feel insulated from it. So that's kind of why I love it. And then if we go, so there was Carrera, then uh, Jag, and then it was the, what was in front of the Jag? Oh, the Cadillac. There you go. So 1960 Cadillac Coupe de Ville. Mm -hmm. So growing up in America, my stepfather said, if you made America, you drive a Cadillac or a Lincoln. Or he actually said Cadillac and Lincoln, but we don't emit that part out. Yeah. So that was kind of what he said, you know, to show you if you made it. Um, I think in 1960 to maybe 1970 was the golden years or the of American cars. Yeah, I, I mean, it's certainly when you got a lot for your money, literally with the length of the if, cars. If you buy by the inch, yeah, yeah there's yeah. a lot of value there. But on the on the flip side too, they're changing model uh, the whole the car itself, the styling on an annual basis. Mm -hmm. So a 59 Cadillac looks different from a 60, from the taillights and the, the rocket. Yeah. And, and but every, everything else was the same, was it? 59 or was and 60 share the same Basically, body. yeah. Underneath. Headlights, bump, uh, I'm sorry, not headlights, bumpers, taillights are different. Okay. Then 61 and 62 is no, brand but, new. But I mean all the, under, the externals, the chassis, is the chassis the same or am I wrong in thinking N that? Just so on the 59 and 60, the taillights are different, the bumpers are different, mm -hmm. and a couple of things here and there are different, but they're more or less the same car yeah 61 and 62 completely different, different from 59 60 yeah so every couple of years it's a brand new chassis i mean now it's what seven years at least years. yeah so that shows you how profitable how how great american cars were back then so here is a quick story on how we're doing on You've time got more than enough time okay. james so one of my dream engine was a twin turbo v8 built by a gentleman, his name was Gail Banks. Mm -hmm. He owned a company called Banks Engineering. So I remember this vividly, like in 1983 or so, he put his, at that time, a 500 horsepower twin turbo motor into a Pontiac Firebird, not a Trans Am. I think it was a Firebird because that car was more aerodynamic than a Trans Am. And with a 500 horsepower motor in it, it went to Bonneville, they just basically changed the tires for high-speed tires, mm -hmm. and it went 200 miles an hour. And I, no other cars at that time in 1983 went 200 miles an hour. It was a great uh, piece in Car and Driver magazine. It was great publicity for Banks Engineering or Banks Power. Mm -hmm. And I saw the engine and I saw the twin turbo and the small block V8. Wow, that's the engine I would love to have one day. Um, what would I put in? I haven't figured out that far yet. So fast forward and um, 10 years ago or so, um, I decided to build a car. I've never had a process of really building a car from start to finish, using an existing chassis, picking the color, picking what I want, so on and so forth, making it bespoke for me, like a tailor suit. Mm -hmm. So I remember that engine. And, I'm, and I go, well, now, that small block V8 twin turbo, now it's making 700 horsepower, 800 horsepower. What would I put it into? Obvious choices is probably like a 67, 69 Camaro, 70 Chevelle. Not really a fan of a Nova. Don't want it in the Corvette. What else you can't you can't put it in the Ford because it's got Chevy motor. Yeah. So one of the more iconic design on the Cadillac to me was a fifty nine sixty, and it's never been done. So yeah. I would say screw it, why not? So I basically bought the motor, uh, bought all the the parts for it, had it built, and then shoehorned it into the sixty Coupe de Ville, and now I have a I don't know twenty four foot long car or something like that 
with 700 horsepower that goes like stink going acceleration wise in a straight line absolutely but if i need to hit the brakes i need to maybe you know you forecast put, it ahead you need to put the sails up to stop it or the anchor yeah, yeah both yeah. both probably and the parachute <laughs> and then get everyone to hold back right and 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 they address me as captain because i'm the captain of the ss 60 Cadillac coupe de ville yacht yeah, yeah. so that is a seven eight hundred horsepower monster that goes really really fast straight and it's yellow and it's bright. Yeah, so yeah. look, well, at least people can see you when you're shooting past them, right? Sure, yeah, like a, the, the, the land yacht, absolutely. Yeah. And so then as we go back, we go to the next row of cars, that was then, that would be the G-Wagon? Yeah, so I've got this uh, G550 uh, 4x4 square that sits at about 8 foot 2. It's, it's rather tall, I will say that. I need a step ladder to, to climb into the vehicle. It's got the triple lockers on it. It's got portal axles. It's got 40-inch tall tires. It looks like a Mercedes-Benz monster truck. Yeah, and it's based, this is what you do all your glamping in, right, when you go out? Yeah, absolutely. The scary part is that it does have a, a overall height of 8'2". So with the tent on it and me trying to climb up on top of the tent, we're like doing a 13 feet, you know. So Yeah, it's like you're climbing, you're Spider-Manning it up there. I feel like it's climbing Mount Everest. Yeah, mm -hmm. and then in the middle of the night, if I got a urinate and take a little pee break, I'm kind of afraid to jump off the... the, the <laughs> just go out the door. Just out the tent. Or, yeah, and, and just shoot it toward the back. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and then in front of that you had the R34 what R34 we don't talk about it I don't have one what are you talking about well if you did have one which sure. one would you have I would have an R34 if I had one yeah yeah and then we'll move on to the spiker yeah sure so then I have a 2007 spiker C8 spiker C8 spider that's yep. a mouthful yeah. yeah easy easy rolls right off there there you go and it's the one with the beautiful inter interior. Everything the about interior it. is all quilted. It looks like a Chanel bag. Yeah. That's what my wife says. And she goes, I need, by the way, I do need a Chanel purse to match, to match the interior. Not just one, obviously. You right. Know, yeah. I mean. So um, very unique car. I think it was built in the Netherlands. Mm -hmm. I think they were around in 2005, 6, 7. Then they went bankrupt and someone lent them money again. And they kept going. At the end, I think they've died or bk Two, three, four times. Yeah. Uh, at the end of the day, I think there's 277 cars made. That's what I was told. I think about 70 to 80 cars are in the United States. Uh, but a beautiful car, uh, Audi R8 powered mm -hmm. motor. Um, the car is built strictly as a cabriolet or a barquetta. There is no top. Yep. If you notice on the windshield itself, there is no, what's that pillar? Like the, there isn't a frame around the windshield, mm -hmm. so there's no there's no provision. You, can, you can't put a sun visor on and whatnot, and it has kind of a wraparound windshield, and really great little details. Consider how how small the company is. Yeah, and then so the next one from there, four five eight. Yes, the Italia. Uh, I think it's kind of your everyday Ferrari. That's super practical. Uh, I still think it's probably the better looking of the four five eight slash four eighty eight slash fa tributo variant so you know the 488 is arguably faster mm -hmm. but to me it doesn't make the right noise yep the tri the uh, fa tributo i haven't driven it yet and it's still faster than the 488 but i still really like the styling of the 458 and i still like the way that the normal normally aspirated engine how it wails yeah so it does sound really nice yeah and it's, it's practical I, I got it new it kind of nicely depreciated it's worth okay money now, but you can just really drive it and enjoy it. And it's fast and very, very competent and don't have to worry about you know, the, the value of the car or, or, or the reliability. It's just a really good mid-engine Ferrari. I think it's 
you know, it's, it's a nice, nice package. Now, what other cars are we missing then? Because obviously we have to talk about your Land Rover. Got a Land Rover D90. Which another one for outland overlanding. Yep, except the, the horrendous re, uh, reliability of the Land Rover. I don't think I've ever heard of a British car breaking down. I don't think it's ever okay. happened. Lucas? Look. Hello? <coughs> Prince I of Darkness? Say, I will just say that every British car I've owned, I've never had an electrical problem with. So then why, why do you have that flashlight, the fuse box, the whole extra fuses, and the kit I saw in your Jag? Well, I'm, admittedly, I've never owned a British car, oh. but still, so it's a, I think it's a 100% record for reliability there. Well, you know what? That Land Rover has broken down so many times in, 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 out, out there when I'm, you know... When you least camping. expect it, yeah. Absolutely. I, you know, if, if I was in you know, South Africa and, and a lion reserve... <clears throat> That thing would have broke down. I would have been eaten by lions by now. That's how unreliable that car is. But, you know, 1994, at that time, Jeep was... What do you mean? They do those things where they'd, like, cross, like, everything in those weird rallies? Yeah, and you you see a tow truck in the behind it just in case. Uh, You're talking about the Camel Trophy. Yeah. 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 They they ended that, if you noticed that. Yeah. Of course. But where else? The only thing they had to do was the moon was the next one, the next trek out there. So, you know what? I bought into the whole image. I, I bought the safari suit, mm-hmm. the pit hat. Of course. Pit hat, yep. you know, the, we're going to go, uh, you know, camel trophying and stuff like that. And it's actually a very fine um, overlanding vehicle. And it's gr- really great for um, just all around off-roading and, and a little bit of rock crawling. And it, it does well on the trails. I think it's right, the, the uniqueness is the fact that it's rare here. Back in where you come from, everyone has them. It's I a mean, fucking tractor. Yeah, you, you, everyone gets it's them. pulling a plow. It, it yeah. replaced a water buffalo or a horse of mm-hmm. some sort. So it was, it's not so unique and, and, and different. Here, it's beloved because of the rarity vehicle. Yeah. So I, I think that kind of you know, creates some sort of cachet to it. Um, but I still have it, still love it, and still drive it. And it's part of my... I, I like sports cars, and I like trucks. And, and then were we sk- missing out on any of that? Um, Land Cruiser, J80, nothing really special about that. But another Co- one that can, you could go with the Land Rover, and then you've got two, so yeah. one can drag the other one out. The Toyota is usually a little bit more reliable. And it, it, Who would have thought? Well, you know, yeah, so the Toyota um, usually pulls out the Land Rover when the Land Rover's not running well. I just got to Photoshop it and says, no, that Land there. Cruiser was never there yeah. to pull out the Land Rover. Yeah. yeah, I mean, you've got enough camera lenses and whatnot over there to be able to make that happen, right? Sure, yeah, yeah. I'm pretty good with that. Yeah. And what else are we missing? That's four, five, eight. Oh, F12 in the garage, the okay. other garage. And uh, so uh, everyday cars are a Range Rover long wheelbase because they're quiet and they're comfortable and it mm-hmm. feels like a S-class interior on the inside, but I've got the height. Uh, Range Rovers are great until the warranty expires. And then they're not so, they then, can be a little bit pricey. give it back to them, yeah. yeah. Uh, F12 is kind of my everyday uh, Ferrari now. It's uh, my Italian Corvette. Mm-hmm. Um, Really, really a good driving car. 700, some odd horsepower is kind of all you need. It's all you need, 700. Sure. Um, it's got a trunk. I can put golf clubs in it. Uh, the ingress, egress is much more manageable than the Countach, which I would have to be a Chinese gymnast to get in and out of, which, mm-hmm. you know what? When I was eight, I was actually a Chinese gymnast. Scratch the idea. So F12, really easy to get in and out. Uh, really competent in traffic. The, 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 the F1 transmission is now... Uh, a double clutch, mm-hmm. so no more hunting and gears, no more in traffic going ha ha ha. It feels like a regular automatic transmission. Right. So that's probably my favorite daily sports car. That's good then. 
And yeah, and then are we missing anything else? A couple Mercedes. I think we got them all. That's pretty much it. So I guess with that point, James, since it comes to the end, I mean, you need a plug again because people might have forgotten now about where they should get their overlanding gear from. So again, my company is called Alpha Equip. So it's A-L-P-H-A-E-Q-U-I-P-T.com. Uh, uh, we are very Toyota-centric right now mm-hmm. because, again, Toyota builds great vehicles. You great can get vehicles. there. Yes. And more importantly, you can get back. Yeah, which is handy. Sure. So fifth-gen 4Runner is kind of our target right now. Third-gen Tacomas, we're building sliders, roof racks, tire carriers, and, of course, wheels is kind of my mainstay. Yeah. And then if people want to follow you on Instagram or anything like that, where can they find I you? Am, so you notice the outfit is in monotone, the same color. Yes. So I am known as uh, hashtag James Matchy Matchy is my handle on Instagram. Yeah. Uh, I pride myself on matching the outfits that I wear and kind of have a theme to it. You do. And, I like that theme. And usually my clothes kind of matches my cars. It's kind of a fun thing I do. Yeah. So my Instagram handle is james at matchymatchy.com. Oh, Matt, I'm sorry. James at matchymatchy. They can figure it out. Yeah, they can do that. But James, it's been an absolutely wonderful time. Thank you so much for making the effort to have me out here. Thanks for coming and, out. And, and for coming to, to be hit in your un- secret lair here. I very much appreciate it. But we can't talk about it because it's a secret lair. Now the That's secret true. is out. Well, no, it's no one listens to this. My dad won't know. That's part of it. Exactly. Yeah, it's okay. So as always, thank you everyone for listening. It's always been a pleasure to have you guys there. Um, if you've got any questions, please let me know at nobreaking, N-O-B-R-A-K-I-N-G. Find us on Instagram, Facebook. If you want to know about guests or anything in the future, please drop us a note. As always, please leave us a very positive review. If you can try and give us something out of 10, I mean, no, it's really out of five, but just think of it out of 10. And if it's bad, just round it down to five out of five. And if it's good, just round it down to five out of five as well. So until then, guys, always appreciate listening and uh, we'll see you next time. So bye-bye.